This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. This episode is a remaster of my first interview with Eric Tonesmeyer, recorded in the early days of the show way back in 2012, when I was still on the land in Pennsylvania. I'm sharing this as a follow-up to Eric's recent return, where he joined me to talk about his current work on alley cropping. Depending on when you're listening to this, if you haven't heard that conversation, definitely give it a listen. You'll find that right before this one in the archives. If you're not familiar with Eric and his work, he's the author of numerous permaculture and permaculture-adjacent books, all of which I highly recommend for your library. Most recently, that includes Carbon Farming, a global toolkit of perennial crops and regenerative agricultural practices for climate change mitigation and food security. Another title where Eric is the sole author is Perennial Vegetables, a gardener's guide to over 100 delicious, easy-to-grow edibles. He is also the co-author, along with Dave Jackie, of Edible Forest Gardens, and wrote Paradise Lot with Jonathan Bates, the former of which is probably Eric's most popular title in the Permi community. In the conversation which follows, we begin with Eric's bio. He then answers some listener questions on perennials before we delve into the broad-scale application of permaculture and how to remove some of the fear factor of implementing a forest garden. Throughout, you will hear both of us touch on plants we would like to see improved and simple ways anyone who is growing a garden can help domesticate and improve edible perennials. Enjoy this conversation with Eric, and I'll join you again after. My name's Eric Tonsmeyer. I'm a permaculture enthusiast, and I guess I first got interested in permaculture back in 1990. And ever since I found out about it, I just sort of said, that's what I want to do with my life. And that's what I've been trying to figure out how to make a living and do all through there, which is, that's a lot of years now. It's 22 years now. I'm, along the way, I, I noticed some real gaps, particularly my interest has always been in the perennial, perennial systems. And I could really see that, you know, I love Mollison's books and everything, but they don't really tell you what, what to grow where it's cold. And in particular, there was very little research out there about the functional plants and, and the plants that would serve a role in the understory within a food forest type system. So I spent a number of years working on that, which culminated in being the, the junior co-author in Edible Forest Gardens, the species guy, and, and among other things I did for that book, writing the book on perennial vegetables. I ran an urban farm. I ran a seed company. I've done all kinds of fun and interesting things and made a lot of terrible mistakes, including here in my own backyard. I share a duplex with another couple, and we are nine years into our forest garden experiment here, and it's going really, really beautifully. My push these days is around the carbon farming and large-scale farm-scale permaculture, both sort of what do we need to do globally to sequester enough carbon, and what do we need to do in the U.S., let's say, for example, or, or in any country to make the business model work of making money in a perennial polyculture system with livestock integration and so on. So that's sort of, I guess, a little bit about me and what I do. You're certainly touching on a lot of the popular topics with folks who I'm talking to as we move permaculture beyond the backyard and beyond those early days of Mollison and Holmgren and into this next generation of permaculture. And I know that species selection is a big issue 
and is something that I received a number of questions on from my listeners. Great. Well, it's my favorite subject. So <laughs> I don't know every part of the world, but I'm happy to answer any questions. I didn't get to check where these folks were writing in from, but they posted the Facebook page for the podcast, and I believe they're in the United States. The first question that came up from Tim Eastham, his initial question is that homeowners associations often forbid, like front yard gardens, but they're not very good at identifying perennials. So growing perennials is a great way to garden under the radar out in the open. And he was wondering if you have any tips for someone who would want to use perennials to grow food that doesn't look like a garden. Sure, sure. We call this the suburban landscape mimic, where you make it look pretty so you don't piss off your homeowners association. Um, well, I did an article or a chapter, I guess, about this in a book called The New American Sustainable Garden. So there's a number of things you can do. One is you can certainly grow all kinds of fruits that are beautiful. And the book I would recommend on that would be Lee Wright, Landscaping with Fruit, which is all about beautiful looking fruit trees. There also is a really good book called The Edible Water Garden, which is just what it says. And a lot of those plants are very nice ornamentals. I, I do certainly cover a bunch. I have a list of ornamental species in the perennial vegetables book. In terms of herbaceous perennials, it depends enormously on where, where you live. Certainly, sea kale is really beautiful. The flowers are absolutely to die for. And a lot of these things are commonly used ornamentals. Red valerian, which is uh, Centranthus ruber, is a, is a commonly grown ornamental out west, and that's a very nice vegetable, according to Martin Crawford. Asparagus is really beautiful. Looks, you know, all nice and soft and ferny and feathery. What you don't want is like coppiced leaf crops and stuff. You know, you want things to be able to attain their full form. So any of the trees and shrubs you can let get to their full form. Now, a lot of the legumes have beautiful flowers. A lot of the nitrogen fixers have beautiful flowers. One I really love for that is Amorpha nana, the dwarf false indigo. Absolutely knockout floor flowers, really beautiful flowers. Not being sure where Tim lives, it's a little hard to say, but I mean, I think most of the perennial vegetables actually look very nice or very respectable. And a lot of them are grown commonly as ornamentals. What you can do is if you search around on the web a little bit, or if you go to a bookstore or go to a library and get some perennials books and just sort of look those things up, you can see how they look. But mostly they look fine. You know, and for nitrogen fixtures, you could plant lupins and other pretty stuff like that and really get away with an awful lot of people will just have no idea. He has two more questions on this. And one is, do you have any resources for cooking with perennials, all these beautiful things that are not part of our regular garden? What I can say is that there are some permaculture food blogs starting to pop up. I haven't seen any that are really in full gear yet. If anybody finds some, let me know and I'll promote them. For a lot of these things, a lot of the crops, the perennial crops we grow are from Asia. So a lot of Asian, a good Asian cookbook will have them. One of the places we're trying to put those kind of recipes is this Apios Institute for Regenerative Perennial Agriculture. The apiosinstitute.org is a, a wiki that I put together with some other folks where people are able to share, among other things, you know, recipes along with videos and photos and stories of how things work and how they combine in polycultures and stuff. And that's a place I've put some things. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I think there needs to be a real... Somebody needs to write a permaculture cookbook. I've been trying to get my neighbors to do it. They don't want to do it. I'm uh, working on, or I think every once in a while about writing one because I've now cooked with, you know, 
80 or 90 different kinds of perennial vegetables, among other things. And I'm just not a really imaginative cook. Greens, I just cook like greens, you know, broccolis, I cook like broccolis, roots, I cook like roots. You're taking the kind of the baking approach to it as just a science as opposed to cooking, which is said to be an art. Yeah, I mean, with really good ingredients, I don't think you need to do anything very fancy. But I will say we're having a, we're working on a chef's workshop to bring permaculture folks and chefs together to start to introduce some of these crops to that world. And I feel like those are the people who are going to go do fancy stuff. So I wish I had a better answer. There are also some good wild foods cookbooks. My favorite one is Billy Joe Tatum's wild foods cookbook. But again, it depends what part of the country you live in, what part of the world. And his last question is, what is your favorite perennial? This week, it's the edible leaf mulberry, which is a mulberry that you coppice to the ground, allow it to re-sprout, and it makes edible leaves that you cook, and they taste really good. Is that also fruit? This particular variety I have has lousy fruit, but there are, among the mulberries out there, we need to be testing the different varieties and see which ones taste good. Some taste good, some taste terrible. I happen to have one that somebody liked and passed on to me, but I could go down to the river here and find a hundred mulberry trees within a mile and, you know, label them and bring the leaves home and cook them up and taste them and decide which ones are best and take a new variety into cultivation or five new varieties into cultivation from doing that. I just like, and what I really like about it is when you cut it down and it re-sprouts, you get tender leaves well into like mid-August, which for me is much later than any of my other perennial vegetables, except maybe garlic chive. You're located in Massachusetts? Massachusetts, yep. So zone six, we're in kind of zone six here, the colder end of, of zone six. That's about comparable to where I am in my valley here in Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. They keep telling us we're zone seven now. I don't quite believe it yet with the frost pockets. Tim had asked me the same question about my favorite perennial, and I think right now mine is definitely going to be elderberry. Oh, yeah. Well, nothing wrong with that. Mine, have, it took three years for them to finally produce, but they survived three flood inundations where they uh-huh. were completely underwater. Tree rolled over them, had a four-wheeler come through with the one flood and rolled right over the bed where they are. And both of them are now chest high and produced a ton of berries, which were thankfully harvested by the deer. Uh-huh. Somebody got to them if I didn't. Yep, yep, that's good. They attract beneficial insects. They're native. They're nice ornamental. They're medicinal. It's a great multipurpose species, absolutely. And I look forward to hollowing out some stems with my children making blowguns with them one day. Yeah, you got to do that. So hopefully we'll do spitballs and not darts. <laughs> And the last listener question we have for this interview comes from Corey Shaw. And his question is, do you have any strategies for selecting perennials that will thrive over time as local climate and weather patterns shift? That's a really good question. Well, partly you can choose species that are very widely adapted in the first place. Something like mulberry, again, is, you know, you can grow mulberries in the desert. You can grow them in the lowland tropics and the highland tropics. There are varieties that will fruit as far as northern Vermont. So there's some like zone four, even zone three mulberries. So if you start with something that can handle it wetter and drier and hotter and colder than where you are, you're getting in a good place. One of the challenges with that is those are often pretty weedy plants. That's a tough one. But I I would look at things that are very broadly adapted. At least in the eastern U.S., they say one of the ways to predict climate change is to look at the plants that grow in cities now. Because cities are a good predictor of what adjacent rural areas will be like. So there's a really nice book called Wild Urban Plants of the Northeast. 
And it talks all about what those species are and what their functions are in the ecosystem and so on. Mulberries in there, false indigo is in there, regular false indigo, Morpha fruticosa, which is a phenomenal nitrogen fixer and very, very widely adapted across the U.S. Wet, dry, hot, cold, high elevation, low elevation, flooding, salt, drought, you name it. I like that quite a bit. I have a copy of that in my library. Found it very useful for understanding what exactly was I would find in the urban environment. Yeah, it's a great read. That's the best advice I have on that for now, I think. It's just, well, the other thing, I guess, is to plant a diversity of crops. For us here in a wet year, we get lousy grapes, but we have plenty of other fruit. In a bad strawberry year, gummies are fruiting at the same time, so we can eat gummies. We have enough. I think on our tenth of an acre, we have over 40 species of fruit now. So there's always something that's going to fruit no matter what the year is like. And we have over 70 species of edible leaves, perennial edible leaves. So there's always going to be some of them doing well in any given year, even if there's never a year when they all do well. So that's another form of crop insurance, so to speak. And if you install good rainwater harvesting and build good organic matter in your soil, that's part of that insurance program as well. It goes back to building the basics and then providing an appropriate amount of diversity. Yeah. And you were mentioning about selecting the mulberry. As we move forward and begin planting more of these diverse species that we're not necessarily used to finding as food, do you see a role for individuals who want to become plant breeders for these species? Oh, yeah. I see that as the, as the role, actually. We can't wait for, you know, I don't want to rip on Monsanto or whatever. We can't wait for Monsanto. We can't wait for the universities. We can't wait for USDA to prioritize these species because they're not going to. They just don't fit into their plan for agriculture. So it's really up to us and it should be up to us anyway. And I do a whole talk on plant breeding, particularly for perennials. I just feel like some of the ways to do it are so easy. And really, we should all be out there doing it. You can join the North American Fruit Explorers or the California Rare Fruit, what are they, CFRG Growers, the Florida Rare Fruit Council or one of those groups, and they go out and do fruit exploring. They go find the best wild this or that, the wild persimmon, the best wild pecan, and bring them home and do breeding. You can join the American Chestnut Foundation and get involved. We've done some crosses with them here. There's two books that would be the key books to get. One is called Breed Your Own Vegetable Varieties by Carol Deppie, which changed my life. And the other one, which talks a lot about domesticating wild perennials, actually. And then the other one is, is uh, Raul Robinson's Return to Resistance, which is phenomenal. And it has a whole, a whole piece, and he actually wrote a whole companion book about farmer-led breeding projects. So how to organize a farmer-led breeding project, or in this case, it could be a gardener-led breeding project in your neighborhood or with your, you know, farmer growers association or something. I feel like we need to adapt varieties to every region and we need to put that, we need to ramp up that process dramatically. We need to be going at it intensely and quickly. And the first step that I'm still mostly doing is just getting my hands on the plants and getting them here and evaluating them. Then the next step is selecting the best like if you planted out a hundred good king henry's and found the best tasting one you've just moved good king henry breeding more forward than anybody has in a hundred years or if you go out my friend went out in, in florida and found the turkey lake persimmon variety it's one of the few southern subspecies persimmon varieties available by anybody because just nobody went out and did it all the persimmon people are farther north 
So you can make a big contribution just by selecting, and then within that, you can begin to do some breeding. I'm trying to breed a better sea kale broccoli by crossing colewort, which is cranby cordifolia, with regular sea kale cranby maritima. Eventually, I want to get a little breeder circle of 10 or 20 people involved in that project and start really working on that. Let's breed a better perennial broccoli. I met a gentleman in my early days of permaculture who was a former professional plant breeder working with some of the large research seed companies. And he was talking about how they have to plant a million plants to see all the variation within that one particular generation and make the proper selection from there for what their next line was going to be. That tends to be more the case with annual crops that are already highly bred. Okay. When we're working with things that are barely domesticated, it's a very different situation. A much smaller scale? A smaller scale. It's nice to be able to grow out 10,000 of something if you can, but you don't have to. Carol Deppie gives different numbers for what she recommends. It, it depends on a number of factors in the plant's genetic system and stuff. Like uh, Oikos tree crops is a larger scale example. One of the things they were doing is working on beach plum breeding, and they planted out, I think, 4,000 seeds of beach plum and then selected the four or five best dug those up, moved them to a new location, and started selling the seeds of those. And all they did was select for the ones that were the most dwarf and high yielding in annual bearing. That wasn't terribly hard. The USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service did some work on bayberry, where they planted out a bunch of bayberry seedlings, a couple hundred bayberry seedlings, and they picked out the ones that were the most vigorous. Okay, anybody could do that, you know. You don't need 100 acres to do it in a whole research team or anything like that, especially with the smaller perennial vegetables. They're not really very big. Well, you mentioned bayberry, which is one that I plan to add to my garden this year. So there may be a project for me in the future. Yeah, yeah. And you should get your hands on their stuff to begin with. So you start with what's already in good shape and then move forward from there, you know. Start with a good base and just continue to improve it over generations. Yeah. And, and bayberry, interestingly, is one of the, I just wrote an article about nitrogen fixing species in their relative amount of nitrogen they fix. And bayberry turns out to be one of the better native species. America pennsylvanica, Morella pennsylvanica, whereas the other bayberry species are in the low category, interestingly enough. I'm excited about it. If you have well-drained soil, bayberries, if it doesn't coppice well, it's a good nitrogen fixer. It also is a great habitat for beneficial organisms like birds and stuff, and it provides really good food for migrating birds as well. So it's a nice multi-purpose habitat and, and nitrogen fixation species and great erosion control too. Now I'm going to have to make sure that the company that I was going to order from has the appropriate species. Yeah. Uh, if you go to the, uh, the NRCS, I'll be doing an article about this soon, but if you go to the NRCS USDA plants database and look it up, you should be able to track it down through their plant release centers. I can't remember the name of the variety that they domesticated, but there is a, an improved variety out there of that species. And partly, we just need to look at the work people already did and share this stuff around. I had no idea that NRCS was out there domesticating bayberries, but then there they are. They're doing it, you know. And that's a big ongoing issue that I have with sharing this information is just to get this knowledge out there. There are so many little bits and pieces that exist that you may not find or run across otherwise. Yeah, I'm doing my best to get stuff out there in articles and on the web and mostly through the APOS Institute website because that's a user-generated 
piece so we can all put stuff in there together. And the other thing is that plants don't read the books. You know, they're going to have the same thing that does medium in my garden. You can dig up a chunk of it and take it just down the street where there's better soil, put it in, and it grows twice as big as it ever did here. We need to, especially with these less known species, I think we need to use the sort of web 2.0 opportunity to share with each other how they perform in different areas and also testing polycultures in multiple areas and reporting on how they do. I think that's a basis for building a research platform. So we need to just start by saying, well, I'm growing elderberry and groundnut over here. Are you growing that over there? How do they do well? Do they do well together or not for you? How are the harvest logistics of that? And start to really test out some of these, again, in a decentralized research structure, just like a breeding can be a very decentralized backyard phenomenon, as long as there's some coordination between people doing it. As we continue to test both the local overall climates plus microclimates, individual site conditions, and find out what truly works. Yeah, and what works for you won't work for the person next door necessarily. But there are things that generally do well. That's what we're trying to figure out is, you know, what are the broadly adaptable species and the broadly adaptable polycultures? And if we all take this knowledge to heart and do our work, we'll continue to grow that knowledge and find those. And we get to eat well while we're doing it. So Yeah, I'm still trying to find a tree collard that will grow well in Pennsylvania. Yeah, there aren't any. <laughs> I've never found one. Tree collards turn out to be, I now grow them in my greenhouse. They are just not remotely hardy. I don't think they'll grow anywhere on the East Coast because in the Southeast, it's too hot and humid for them. And then up here, they don't like the winter. But we do have nice perennial brassicas. We have sea kale. We have Turkish rocket. Those are perfectly fine. And somebody needs to work on breeding some good, true perennial brassica, proper species for this for this area. It's a heartbreaker not being able to grow tree collards. If you find one that grows for you, please let me know. But boy, they seem to be fairly particular about where they want to grow. Yeah, I spent probably a month trying to track down something that I might be able to plant here and then could not find something even remotely appropriate. Yeah, they just don't, they don't want to do it. The perennial broccoli, the nine-star perennial broccoli, I did get it to overwinter, but it was just really not a very impressive food plant to me, to be honest. We have lots of great perennial leaves for this area, plenty of them, but tree collards are delicious. They are really good really good and beautiful and cool and evocative. You know, they inspire people in a way that Turkish Rocket does not. Yes, I fell in love with them in Oregon. And ever since it's been this on again, off again, love affair, as I hope that someone somewhere, but not yet. You just got to build an insulated greenhouse and they'll be fine in there. I've had some conversations about broad scale permaculture with Warren Brush and some of the work that he's doing for commercial development. As I spoke to you before, I talked with Connor Stedman about carbon farming. And we initially started discussing a lot of the numbers on how much carbon can be captured using plants. I wanted to talk with you then about some of the broad scale work of working permaculture up and also some of your thoughts on species that are useful for carbon, for carbon farming with perennials that are also useful to human beings then as food and other uses. Sure. Well, first I'll say that the numbers on carbon sequestration are challenging to work around because there are so many variables between the type of practice, the type of species, the type of soil, the climate, and then they scientists fight about how you measure the soil carbon. But broadly speaking, the more perennial, the better. Basically, the answer I'm finding from the research 
And I'll also say that there's a really interesting new phenomenon. Ten years ago, I would have said there were essentially no farm-scale permaculture projects in the U.S. that identified as such, besides a couple little places here and there in terms of actual commercial operations that make most of their money from products they sell and not from workshops and consulting. I would have said there were almost none. But there's a guy named uh, Rafter Ferguson who's doing his PhD work at the University of Illinois. His website is liberationecology.org, I think. And he's been doing a survey, and he's got a list of ever-growing list of 160 farms in the U.S. that self-identify as permaculture farms. So within that group, he's finding out who are the actual real commercial producers, and he's going around and doing the first survey, to my knowledge, of that body of folks. And my suspicion is most of them are going to turn out to have started within the last five years. I think there's a new wave of people taking permaculture to a bigger scale, and I'm really, really excited about that. There's tons of people doing things that we could call permaculture. Joel Salton is really into permaculture, and there's tons of people doing his stuff on tens of thousands of acres around the country. And there's who knows how many thousands of acres of people doing rotational grazing and organic tree cropping and so on. They just don't necessarily describe what they're doing as permaculture. But it's exciting to see these new permaculture identified farms. And, and there's some that have been around forever that I just didn't know about because they're just minding their own business doing their farm or they're, they're far away from where I live and I don't get out enough. I wasn't getting out enough or something. So in terms of the practices that I'm seeing people doing and that I'm encouraging people to do, certainly key line seems enormously promising. If you have the right kind of slopes and, and the right kind of soils, it seems like a really, really interesting practice. And I'm dying to get some more land so I can start to put some in practice. And there are some decent sized key line operations on the West Coast that are permaculture identified. Certainly rainwater harvesting can be done on a pretty big scale as well. Great big swales and contour operations and stuff. I like to see livestock integration, not just livestock rotation, but using livestock to substitute for labor and fossil fuels. One of my favorite examples of this is Badger Set Research Farm, which is in Minnesota, who are doing amazing breeding work. They're trying to develop hazelnuts and chestnuts to replace corn and soybeans. And their model is that those plants are coppiced on a 10-year rotation. You take a biofuel crop off, and then within a few years, you have nuts coming up again. And you just don't coppice them all every year, so you always have a good supply of food. So they've got a, a pretty big research site set up there, and they're learning to manage with livestock. So they bring in pigs to pick up the drops. And when you do that, the organisms, the disease and pest organisms that typically overwinter in the nuts and the leaf litter get eaten. So it breaks the life cycle of those organisms while providing some fertility through manure and a yield of pork. They're grazing with sheep and their horses, I think, and they're also using chickens and guinea hens to control ticks and pests of the crops in the understory as well. So I think that's a great example of how we can use livestock to manage. My favorite story of livestock making work easier is a food forest in Mexico at Las Cañadas up in the highlands where they planted fruit and nut trees and nitrogen-fixing trees into a pasture that they just could not kill the grass. It was a super intense pasture grass. They tried all kinds of animals, and finally they found that geese were perfect. They put 10 geese in per acre, 
and the geese grazed the grass completely down to bare ground, and every time it resprouted, they ate it. At that point, they could move the geese on and just leave two per acre, two geese per acre. All kinds of stuff was starting to grow up out of the understory, and they've been able to grow all kinds of amazing things, taro and sweet potatoes and ginger and all kinds of really cool stuff in the understory. And this particular breed of geese, the African weeder goose, only eats grass and clover. So they don't have any problems with them eating anything else. They occasionally nibble the tips of wing beans and air potatoes, but that's it. So they rove around and they're in patrol looking for grass, but they leave everything else behind. That's a great example of how to minimize labor and machinery and get another yield of geese at the same time. You got happy geese, you have happy people, you're saving money, you're saving fossil fuel, and you're establishing a perennial system with a very low technology strategy. I think that's just great. So I'm super into that. I'm loving the tree crops. I'm loving the perennial staple crops. We're not really where we need to be in the cold climates of the world on perennial staple crops yet, but there are many ready for prime time or in prime time in, in warmer parts of the world. I'm also interested in some of the applications of mixing annual crops with perennials like contour strips and stuff or agroforestry type systems, and particularly where you're using organic no-till vegetable techniques or using animal tillage. I think that's really very, very promising. So when you take those kinds of practices, put them together with a good marketing strategy and a good business plan, then you have a permaculture business that just makes more and more money every year, assuming you can get through the time when you're trying to establish all those systems and test everything out. That's the real challenge is you have to be willing to experiment for a while to figure out what it's going to be for you. To be able to devote those three to five years as you're waiting for various pieces of the system to come online. Yeah, and that's when you grow annuals in the meantime. You can make plenty of money on annuals while you're waiting for those things or on livestock while you're waiting for those for longer term perennials to come online. When you're discussing these kinds of integrated systems and all of these, I think you probably named 15 or 20 different techniques and forms of integration, what kind of acreage are you looking at for that? Is this something that would be like a hobby farm size of 5 to 10 to 20 acres or really large, broad scale in the hundreds of acres? I think the potential applications can be very large. In Australia, they're doing key line on 1,000-acre farms. So I think with grazing and key line and some sort of lower-intensity long-term tree crops, you can do very, very large operations. The people that I'm talking to who are doing stuff tend to be more on the 5 to 20 acre scale. And I know people making very good money on 2 or 3 acres. On that 2 to 3 and 5 to 20 scale, do you know what kind of human inputs are required? Well, I guess it depends a, a lot on what type of stuff you're doing in terms of intensively managing livestock. You got to be there to move them once or twice a day and water them. So it's much more work than just letting them go out there and graze everything down to, to a nub. But livestock requires some being present to make sure everything's going well for them. Yeah, I mean, I think it just really depends on what you're doing. If that's all raspberries and you're picking them yourself, you're going to need a crew of, you know, 30 people to pick 20 acres of raspberries during that season. But if you do a U-pick operation, then you don't need nearly so many people to do that. I think labor is a huge variable and depends on what you're looking at. And myself, I've looked more at smaller scale types of products. Like I, I ran a seed company and I've done a lot of 
seed collecting as a day job. I think in a commercial food forest that was even just a couple acres in, in size, you could make more money on the seed growing in the understory than you could on the fruits and nuts in the overstory. So our, the question is, are you looking to maximize dollars or convert a lot of land? And what we really need to do right now is convert huge amounts of land to carbon banks. But at the same time, you got to be able to make money under global petrocapitalism at the same time. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to figure. I can't point people to a lot of up and running established models of how to do that just yet. Because they're just not present. Or I just don't know about them. And there are some interesting things out there. There's a really nice operation in West Virginia that has a a great big forestry operation. They planted out a, a black walnut plantation for timber. They're growing mushrooms and ginseng and golden seal in the understory. And they have their own sawmill and their own cabinet making operation. So that's a great example of making money on hilly forested land with lousy soil. But it's been in the family for generations to get to that point, to get that capitalized, to be able to have a cabinet shop with a bunch of employees in it, you got you to gotta really be somewhere to get to that point. And that's partly why I'd like to see more producers associations popping up where people who are involved in permaculture can say, I'll contribute stuff for a seed company or a medicinal plant line or a tea product line or something so that everybody who has lemon balm in their understory can plug into an operation without having to do all the marketing and processing themselves. So that's one of my fantasies is these sort of Regional producers associations or regional producers cooperatives, I think, are part of figuring out how to crack some of those markets open. And I'm trying to remember what the organization is that does a lot of that seed trading. Seed Savers Exchange, yeah. And they're great on the small scale, but like there are some things that are really great permaculture plants that you just can't get seed. You can barely get seed at all, and you can't get it wholesale. And if we have people wanting to establish larger farms, they're going to need to be able to buy some of these seeds by the pound that you can't even buy by the ounce yet. And that's where your dream of a, a grower's cooperative comes in. Yeah. And then everyone has a little piece of that. There's a buy-in that takes the small-scale grower to help build the large-scale grower. I sort of think so. I think we need to sort of build our way up. And like Badger Set talks about this with their hazels, they're saying, look, at this point in history, hazels are a high-value item. People are getting $18 a, pound, $18 a liter for hazelnut oil. So right now you need to be sort of a, a driven entrepreneur or plug into their, they, they now have a producer's association of hazel oil. In their vision 20 years from now, Iowa doesn't grow corn and soybeans anymore. It just grows chestnuts and, and hazelnuts. At that point, it becomes a commodity and you're looking at a totally different kind of operation necessary to make things work. So there's sort of a scaling up timeline or something that we need to figure out. And yet we need to transform the landscape in the next 10 or 20 years if we want to do something about climate change. And this all takes us back to the systems thinking and systems theory within permaculture to look at where the model is now, find the leverage points for each of our needs that we have to meet along the way. So that as we move forward in time, it's okay, during these first five years, I need financial capital while I'm growing these plants so that I can survive and take care of them. How do I do that? Okay, these five years are over. I've made it to this point where I have the plants. What's the next step while still existing within Western society as we move forward? 
I have done applied permaculture to economic development for a number of years here, and, and it's really fun to have a place to talk about those things and not just about the plants, which are always going to be the sexiest part of permaculture to me, but ultimately it's about a lot more than plants. It's about people and jobs and, and the waste stream and transportation and food and healthcare and books and all these other things we we want to do to have a civilization because I'm one of those people who does not want a collapse scenario where everybody is a peasant in their own backyard. I like maintaining civilization. I'm a huge fan of civilization. But I think we need to completely overhaul it in every way if we're going to stand a chance of surviving as a, as a sophisticated species. That points to a number of challenges that we all face in order to make that happen. Yeah, a couple of minor issues come up on the way to completely transforming society, like dealing with people, which are even more complicated and stubborn than goats. And goats are bad enough on their own. Boy, when you put people in there, it's a nightmare. I have dealt with the local politics here in the city of Harrisburg, which is the capital of Pennsylvania, and it's not pretty. To a certain degree, there may come a time when climate change becomes a big enough issue that we look at some of these systems, say some of these political and economic systems, and say, you know what, you either need to get with the program or get out of the way. It may come down to having to replace some systems that just are not flexible enough or are too entrenched to flex with the program. I'm not talking about armed revolution and stuff, but I think there's lots of ways to make those kind of changes happen if we have to do that. We're about a generation behind where we need to be because of the people who are currently in control of many of these systems. And that if we can make it for another 30 years or so, people who are in their late 20s to mid 40s who are in touch with many of these ideals will be moving into those positions of power and be able to begin making more of these changes. That would be fine with me, man. I'm on the old end of things. I'm 41. People who are coming into permaculture now in their 20s are so not scared of taking it big. I met a, a young woman, Erica Klopp, who just graduated from... Gulf Coast University in Florida, who was telling our workshop down there, oh, yeah, we got $100,000 that we raised through student groups on campus to build a food forest. And I was like, what? You did what? And she just takes that for granted. That's just something you do. You know, of course you do permaculture on a big scale. Of course you use a bunch of money to do it. Of course, a million dollars to transform a college campus into permaculture is a good idea. You know, I'm really, really encouraged to see that. I'm just trying to keep up with the young folks as best I can and pass on some of the tools that I've been learning about the species and the practices and so on. And so that people can move forward. One of my mentors, Steve Breyer, who's a nursery owner near here who I, I've worked for, he says that he patents all of his mistakes, but he open sources all of his successes so that people will go forward and make new and more interesting mistakes. And I think that's really what I'm trying to do as well. This book that my housemate and I here just wrote is all about our garden over the last nine years. And some of it's about the things that we would do differently if we had it to do over again, that we would rather not see other people make those same mistakes again. We'd rather see them try something new and different and see how that goes and, and pass that on to people. I'm hoping that our garden here looks embarrassingly like a dinosaur 10 years from now. If people take up the challenge that I'm putting out, it will, because I think we'll, we'll know so much more 10 years from now. People will just laugh at what I've been pour my heart and soul into over here all this time. I want that. You know, you want that to happen. 
And as permaculture grows and develops, we're moving further and further away from necessarily doing mimicry to more and more educated design that can fit into different environments and to get buy-in from other individuals. Because they look at it and they go, you know, that's really pretty. Well, yeah, this is permaculture. Let me show you how this works. And engaging folks who wouldn't necessarily be interested in some of those early gardens. Yeah, well, I mean, my garden's pretty scruffy looking over here. Yeah, and it, it doesn't have to look scruffy at all. I choose to have a scruffy look partly because I'm lazy and partly because that does provide some additional habitat benefits above and beyond the really manicured garden. But, you know, there's folks at Longwood Gardens, which is not too far from you, who are really interested in permaculture and are doing classes there on edible landscaping. That's super exciting, very exciting. So I feel like permaculture is at a stage where it's starting to really branch out into a lot of different kinds of folks who are doing different kinds of things. And I think that's great. And we've, we've done really well getting to where we are. And we've really done well on the backyard scale and the homestead scale. But it's time to think about college campuses and whole cities or city neighborhoods and, and whole watersheds and whole countries and whole planets. I mean, that's the challenge that our times are putting before us that we have to figure out how to do. And some of that is gonna be making it look pretty in some places. Mostly that's not what it's gonna be uh, in terms of acreage, but if, if you wanna make a difference in front of businesses or in front of the library, you wanna put in a forest garden, it better look nice. And it can, it can look beautiful. It can look absolutely beautiful. With where things are now, as you continue to gain your knowledge and share this information with the world and some of the challenges that we face, where do you see moving this idea of permaculture forward? Here's the thing. This stuff works. Permaculture works, you know, and you can even do it kind of not even all the way right. And it mostly works. The plants want to grow. The animals want to be animals and do their thing. Insulated greenhouses work. All this stuff works, you know. It's amazing how forgiving these things are. We have no right to take for granted how easily these things want to cooperate with us. And Bill Reed, who's one of the big uh, regenerative design professionals in, in the U.S., he says that in his experience, you can restore, you can regenerate the health of any piece of land in 18 months in his experience, which is about what it took us here. And this other thing I was really liking that, I think this is, uh, Jeff Lawton says, compared to what other people are doing on the land, broadly speaking, we can't help but make it better. Even the worst permaculture mistakes are probably much, much, much better than leaving the land alone. The only exception I can think of to that is if you introduce the next kudzu to an area. So you want to be thoughtful about that. You know, you, you heal degraded soil, you bring it back to life, you put a bunch of food plants where there was nothing growing before, and you've made the world a better place, at least in that one area. And that's a pretty great thing to do. That's a, and it's inspiring, and it makes you feel confident, and other people want to come see it, and then you are ready to sort of step on and try a bigger and, and better scale and, and more exciting project. And then as you do that, you have more opportunity to build those larger projects from all the individuals who have come through. And you've built that social capital and these other connections that aren't financial that open up these doors to opportunity. Before we got the interview started, we were talking a little bit about your role as the junior co-author for Edible Forest Gardens. 
and you were mentioning about how easy it is to get a forest garden off the ground, that it doesn't have to be scary and intimidating. And I wanted to have you touch on that a little bit before we get around to wrapping things up. Sure, sure. I mean, people get scared by that book. It's huge. It's monstrous. We never intended it for it to be so long. It was supposed to be 150 pages. It just, we're both a little bit compulsive. But it's really not hard. I actually love Martin Crawford's Forest Garden book for this because it's just like, hey, here's what you do. Boom, boom, boom. You look at the land, you figure out where you want it to go. You figure out the things you most want to grow. You figure out the other things that fill in the gaps. Like, okay, well, I want to go fruits, but I need to pick some nitrogen fixers. I need to add some ground covers. I should add some perennial vegetables in there and so on. You plant them out. You can always move them around if they were a little bit too close. The trees you want to get spaced properly, but the perennials and shrubs, you can move around if you didn't get them in the right place. The stuff just wants to grow. It wants to create a, a living, functioning ecosystem. And our experience here has been that, boy, stuff just not only does it want to grow, but it wants to make you famous. It wants to make you have a thousand people come through your garden and pay you for tours. And it wants you to start a nursery and write books about it. That's pretty encouraging. We started out here figuring our budget was going to be that we were going to pay a certain amount for our garden every year, but it's actually ended up bringing in tons of money for us, totally unexpectedly. The stuff works. You end up eating a ton of fruit and the birds get some, but that's okay. And some things don't grow and you rip them out and get rid of them or you fight to keep them if you want. But we just, if something doesn't grow, we get rid of it. We plant something else that's going to grow just fine on its own. So now we're really at the stage of we know these are the things we, we like to eat that grow well for us. We're going to put them in functioning polycultures. And that, what I'm using now in my courses is I have a two-page summary of guidelines for polycultures, which basically summarizes all my experience and the things I've seen in other places as well and takes the best out of the two-volume forest garden book on two pages. Anybody can use that to design polycultures. I've had people come in and do that workshop cold with no background in forest gardens, and they design perfectly functional polycultures. They may not have done their whole crystallizing their goals and analyzing the site and all that, but most of the time you don't really need to do a 25-hour design process for a little backyard forest garden. It's more important that they go out and do the work and implement and learn from their successes and failures. One of the workshops we do here now is a tasting workshop. Actually, it's coming up pretty soon. People come and they eat at our place in the Triple Brook Farm down the road. They eat persimmons and kiwis and pawpaws and chestnuts and pine nuts and all this stuff. And the things they like, I know they're going to find out how to grow them. They're motivated enough that they're going to find out how do you grow an American persimmon and where do you get one from. Just the experience of tasting the things and walking around in a mature one, you go, oh, man, well, I totally want to do this. I just want to encourage people to feel like you don't need a, a triple PhD to be able to plant a forest garden. It's just gardening. You make sure you got some nitrogen fixers. You make sure you got some ground covers. You make sure you got some useful native stuff in there. You make sure you have low maintenance food plants and good varieties of those. Like if you're going to grow pears, get a fire blight resistant pear. It's not rocket science. It's not really that hard. Try and have some stuff in the aster and umble families in there that are going to attract beneficial insects. You'll have weeds come up in those families anyway, and you can just allow them to stay. It's, you don't need to be super sophisticated. It's not any harder than any other kind of gardening that people do. And in many ways, it's a lot easier because you're just going with the flow of what nature wants to do anyway. Plant what's important to you. Let the rest happen and enjoy your garden. 
Yeah, and eat well. You know, these days I'm eating in my garden. I'm eating persimmons and kiwis and pawpaws and kibias and garlic chives and the fall perennial vegetables are coming on. So we've got leaves of like, you know, sea kale leaves and, and Turkish rocket leaves. And soon we'll be digging up tubers and there's uh, edible mulberry leaves are actually still good this time of year. And there's raspberries and it's just great. It's really fun. You say you share a duplex and you have about a tenth of an acre. Yeah. How much food would you say you're producing like as a percentage of what you eat? We get this question all the time. I will say that our soil was so terrible when we started. We've come a long way, but we're not where we want to be yet. And all of our plants aren't in full production yet. Persimmon could grow enough. It's 25 feet high now. It could grow to be 70 feet tall. So we're just beginning to see some of these things yielding. And we have a lot of shade. With that said, it's somewhere between 10 and 20% of what we eat comes out of the garden. And it's interesting because uh, Brad Lancaster is a very, the guy who wrote Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands, is a very similar situation. Him and his brother and their sweeties live in another similar shared housing thing with a wall down the middle or whatever and share about a tenth of an acre. And they have calculated 10 to 25% of their food comes from their garden. Their garden is all in full sun, excuse me, which gives, gives them a lot more photosynthesis capacity to work with. And they can grow mesquite, which is awesome and is a really great staple. The only staple crop we can grow really at that kind of scale here is the chestnut, which now that one of the neighbors, Norway maples, came down, we're finally going to be able to put one in. Mostly we grow fruits and vegetables and eggs. And now in our greenhouse, we're doing aquaponics, so we'll have fish. And we raise silkworms, black soldier fly larvae, and red wigglers as food for the chickens and fish. And we grow a little bit of sorghum and millet as food for the chickens and stuff as well. But we, we still have to buy some of those things in. We don't have a composting toilet. We're not allowed to in our town. So you're just flushing all those nutrients away that you take out. So you have to continue to bring in some inputs to make up all that yield that comes out that doesn't go back has to be made up for. I mean, you can regrow the organic matter. You can sequester more carbon. You can fix more nitrogen, but the phosphorus and the calcium and all that has to go back in, ultimately, what you take out. But all in all, it sounds like you have a fairly stable growing system. Yeah, it works great. Some of those things, we don't do anything except maybe mulch them or weed them a little bit, and they just grow and make food. We have Our sea kales are now 12 years old. They just keep making broccoli every year. That's pretty great. That's what you want. That's what we're trying to get to, right? That's part of the ideal of permaculture is to have a low maintenance system that you always need to be part of it to harvest, if nothing else. As you slowly design yourself out of the system, so whether you're there to use it or not, someone else can harvest it. You want to be have somebody else come in and pick it up if you're going to leave, yeah. But there's no, to me, the idea of the totally self-maintaining system is not really the aim of permaculture because it needs you. You're a, a part of it, but you should be as happy in it as a free-range animal is, meaning if you can get to the point where every action you take is a harvest of one kind or another, and you're not doing any so-called unnecessary work or any work that doesn't lead directly to a harvest, then you're really getting somewhere. And that's sort of the goal we're aiming towards based on the indigenous management history of the U.S. and Canada were trying to strive towards that kind of a model. And my thought on that idea of designing yourself out is more as I move on 
as a designer and help someone build something that they're going to be able to take it and maintain it without my constant reference or input. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And that they know what the things are and how to eat them and how to care for them. Yeah, that's a problem. I, I meet a lot of people who've planted, you know, sea kale or whatever, and they don't know how to eat it. I did write a book about that, mind you, but I think that's the piece people need is more of the hands-on how to how to eat and, and manage these things. That's a missing piece right now. Well, I can think about the first handful of ripe elderberries that I put in my mouth and that burst of astringency. Like, oh, wait, what? And then it's like, wait, no, 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 this has lots of other uses, not for fresh eating. I know people who like to eat them fresh, but I think they're crazy. I would never do that. You got to make jelly out of them or wine or pies or something like that. That's more what they're for. Each fruit has its highest and best uses. And elderberry, I don't have them in my garden because I reserve space for things that I can eat fresh. I love elderberries. If I had more land, I would totally have some. But if it comes down between that and a beach plum or an Asian pear, I'm not going to plant an elderberry. Those are the design choices that each of us have to make based on our own needs. Yep. And if I had wetter soil, I would have put some elderberries in. And I'm clearing out an area that used to be my compost pile. And I'm, we're looking to put some elderberries in over there because it's a little shadier and they don't mind that. And it's wetter and they don't mind that. So I will have some elderberries next year for the first time. We've covered more than I could have asked to in this interview, as always tends to happen whenever I speak with a guest. But before we wrap this up and call it a day, is there anything else that you would like to add or share for the listeners? I could make a, a shameless plug and say my website is perennialsolutions.org, and I have there an events page, and I have all kinds of articles and videos and fun stuff there. And more broadly, just get out and see the things people are doing. Get to your local permaculture uh, convergence. Get out and try some stuff out. If you don't have land, line something up, or you can go over and play with somebody else's land for them, or you can get some space in a community garden or something and just get out there and, and start making those fertile, new and interesting mistakes so that other people can learn from those and we can uh, move the whole thing forward. And that was Eric Tonsmeyer. You can find him at perennialsolutions.org and his latest venture, the Perennial Agriculture Institute at perennialagriculture.institute. You can also read Eric's current writing, and support his ongoing efforts at patreon.com slash ericktonesmeyer. I've known Eric now for many years, and he and his books are my go-to resources on edible species for permaculture designs, carbon sequestration with plants and agriculture, and planning out for the long term with permaculture design. If you're working on any of these issues in your own practices, or looking for a voice that resonates with positive, achievable solutions for creating permanent culture, definitely add copies of his titles to your library. You'll learn so much not only about the subject at hand, but also on creating a regenerative future. In addition to all the amazing resources Eric shared in this conversation, and my love of his writing and books, another title that ranks among my favorites, and continues to influence my thoughts on gardens resistant to future disasters, including the man-made, is Robert Rodale's Save Three Lives. It is a practical look at reducing the risk of famine using techniques that are compatible with the ethics, outlook, and principles of permaculture. Used paperback copies are, 
at the time of this release in 2022, available for less than $10 through online used bookstores. What books have made a difference in your permaculture journey? Let me know by leaving a comment in the show notes for this episode, or by getting in touch. If you're a patron, send me a DM, or hop over to thepermaculturepodcast.com, click on contact, and send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to know who is coming up as a guest on the show and have your questions included in the conversation, follow the podcast on Twitter at permaculturepod or by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Until the next time, spend each day caring for plants and improving edible perennials while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.